This podcast episode is brought to you by Paleo Valley's Organic Extra Virgin Olive Oil. Now, we all know that many olive oils are cut with seed oils or that they are rancid, and so it's not always easiest to find a quality and properly sourced olive oil. Yes, in case you didn't know, many store bought olive oils are diluted or blended, compromising both taste and quality, and may even cause rancidity. I'm really glad that Paleo Valley's extra virgin olive oil remains pure and unadulterated, sourced from a single organic valley in Greece. Paleo Valley ensures freshness and nutrient content by packaging their olive oil in dark glass bottles. At a certain point, I stopped using extra virgin olive oil, but once our practice started working with people with chronic inflammatory response syndrome or SIRS, we started recommending it for the reduction of TGF beta 1. It is an immune system marker that shows inflammation both for COVID 19, SIRS, and actually many other illnesses. So if your TGF beta 1 is high, you may want to try incorporating a little bit of extra virgin olive oil. Make sure to check it out. It comes in a two pack package. And remember, All Paleo Valley products are guaranteed with a money back guarantee. Go to paleovalley.com slash nwj to get 15% off your order. Thanks for supporting companies that support this podcast. Hey guys, it's Judy from Nutrition with Judy. Thanks for joining me today. My name is Judy Cho, and I am a nutritional therapy practitioner. I am the author of Carnivore Cure, and I work with clients to get to root cause healing. Oftentimes, that is using a meat based elimination diet to do some gut healing. Okay, so today I am very excited to share this interview with you guys. I had the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Brett Share. If you ever watch the Diet Doctor podcast, he is the host of that podcast. Dr. Brett Scherer is a board certified cardiologist and lipidologist in San Diego, but he is also licensed in seven other states, including Texas. He is a full time medical director at Diet Doctor, and he writes a lot of the medical blogs, review guides, and again, is the host of the Diet Doctor podcast. If you've never checked out the podcast, I highly recommend it. He is just a great podcast host. I love that Dr. Share is able to break down science into a very digestible format、um, with whoever he is interviewing and helps people to understand just how to get back to wellness、um, for their own individual body. And he was able to also do that in this talk. If you think about our health and wellness, there are so many fads and diets that come along, and we try to just follow what. An advocate or an influencer or a doctor on the internet will say is the best thing for us. The reality is that as you work with individuals and you hear more of these interviews, you understand that it's very bio individual, meaning that every case is going to be different. So, fruit might work for one person and it may not work for another. Liver might work for one person, but it may not work for another. These are nuances that are so important. And while we want to broad brush answers for what diet works for every single person, it's just not always the case. It's just not most of the case. I hope that this interview shows that、um, finding your own individual diet、um, and macros and Exercise and even managing stress is so important, and find the way that it works best for you. So, let's get right into the interview. So, hi, Dr. Brett Chair. Thank you so much for joining me today.、Um, I've always been a big fan of yours. I have been following the Diet Doctor podcast forever.、Um, you have such a great 
eloquent way to um, interview and you get so much information out of people and then also educate the audience in such a simplistic way. And that's not an easy thing to do. So I commend you for all of that. But if you can introduce yourself to the listeners and watchers of this and just share who you are and, you know, how you got started as a Diet Doctor podcast host. Well, thanks, Judy. That's, that's very kind. It's a nice introduction. So thank you for saying that. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm Dr. Brett Sher. I'm a cardiologist uh, based in San Diego. Um, and, you know, for maybe 10 years or so, I was sort of the standard cardiologist. And I, I even did a preventive cardiology fellow that was a, a based on an Ornish style practice. So very low fat type of nutrition along with all the other lifestyle changes. But over time, I, you know, I sort of had an awakening, I guess you can say, and I evolved more towards the low carb um, approach for nutritional interventions. And through that, I started my own podcast um, and then the low carb cardiologist podcast. And then fortunately was recruited to take over the diet doctor podcast or to start up the diet doctor podcast. And through that, got to know the whole team at diet doctor, which I just immediately fell in love with all of them. I mean, the, the, the people, the website, the mission, the the whole package was just there. And, and then again, I was fortunate to be recruited as the medical director at Diet Doctor. So I still have my own um, preventive cardiology practice, a telemedicine-based practice, but focusing most of my time as the medical director for dietdoctor.com right now. So it's been, it's been a great journey. And really, you know, the mission just to, to get the information out there to as many people as possible and empower as many people as possible to dramatically improve their health. That's amazing. And I mean, you do such a great job with it. So thank you for all the podcasts. I mean, I still, you know, go in and listen um, often. So thank you for all of those. So one, um, you know, podcast or one video that I ended up watching was one that talks about, and I don't know who kind of started the discussion, but there's been a lot of discussion about the glucose insulin model may not be the reason we become insulin resistant and that there may be other factors that uh, what we've been looking at, maybe ketogenic diets aren't fully the answer. Um, And so I just wanted to pick your brain about that. Uh, What are your thoughts on that? And does it even matter whatever the source is that causes any metabolic um, imbalances, then does it matter in um, in the ways that we then start working on healing those such as a ketogenic diet? Yeah, such a great question. And I love this topic and hate this topic at the same time. And, and I'll start with the reason why I hate it is because it, it, it seems like, you know, nutritional science in general, sort of this way, it's become polarized. Like you're either in the carbohydrate insulin model camp, or you're in the calories in calories out camp. And it's like, there's no room for middle ground, right? It seems like it, if you, if you follow Twitter, that, that you've got to be on one of those two camps. And, and I don't operate that way. I mean, I think it's clear carbohydrates and insulin have a significant contribution to obesity, have a significant contribution to metabolic dysfunction. But do I think it explains everything about obesity and metabolic dysfunction? Absolutely not, because then you couldn't have these populations of people eating loads of carbohydrates and still being healthy, whether it's the Katavans or you know, the more traditional Okinawan um, uh, population or you know, places in Greece and Costa Rica that have been looked at where they eat a lot of carbohydrates and they're perfectly skinny and metabolically healthy. Now that has to do with the types of carbohydrates to eat has to do with the rest of their lifestyle and, you know, being outdoors all the time and being active and, and they still, you know, they don't overeat calories. They don't have processed foods. Um, but the point is, you know, you could say when you're eating 70% carbohydrates, if the carbohydrate insulin model was all there was to nutrition, then those people would by default be 
obese and overweight or, you know, and metabolically unhealthy, but that doesn't happen. So I think we need to leave a, a little element of nuance. And, and even if eating carbohydrates isn't the number one cause to make you obese and make you metabolically unhealthy, that also doesn't mean that restricting carbohydrates doesn't work because it clearly does. Right. And this is like the interesting part of being a clinician um, and, but still interacting with researchers and wanting to understand, you know, root causes and so forth. As a clinician, we know low carb diets work, right? They, by following a low carb diet, people lose weight, they improve their metabolic health and they feel better. Now, why does it work is a completely separate question that some clinicians don't even care about. And some patients won't even care about, right? Some individuals would be like, I feel great. Why do I care if it works or not? But it makes sense to want to understand some of the mechanisms behind it, because then, you know, if it's not working, if people are stalling out or, you know, we have to acknowledge individual variation. So when you get into that level of detail, then knowing some of the specifics matter. But again, you know, I think, I think carbohydrates and insulin definitely contribute and play an important role, but it's not the whole story, right? We also have to figure out just total calorie intake. We have to figure out hunger, satiety, emotional response, energy level, enjoyment, you know, eating the foods you like, all those things sort of roll into um, the treatment and prevention of obesity and metabolic disease. And it's got insulin and it's got a lot more than that as well. So I, I don't know if that answered your question or not, but that, that sort of explains why I love the topic and hate the topic all at the same time. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm on the same page as you. So I like doing the research and hearing a new research because then it helps when there's clients or patients that um, the ketogenic diet isn't necessarily working fully, like their insulin isn't going down over time or their triglycerides aren't lowering. So then maybe it's understanding, maybe new research can then help us to understand how to look at these new numbers. But, uh, you know, when, but when we see healing with it, then it's, you know, so I completely understand that. It's just, I noticed that, especially in the internet world of things, um, I, I think it depends on who you're working with, right? So in, um, I'm sure for you, you work with um, patients that um, have already some disease or imbalances. And so it's just how do we write those kind of imbalances? But if you're talking to a younger generation, there's a whole population of people that aren't really sick that are just trying, well, what's the best diet to follow? And they're into wellness. And for them, it's a little bit of a different model. And that's where this whole kind of population of people that are saying it's the polyunsaturated fatty acids and it's not the glucose. So if you removed all PUFAs from a diet then and then you just ate a lot of glucose, you won't ever get insulin resistance. And that's where, well, I don't know if I want to take that bet with younger people and then see if, okay, actually that model didn't work, but now I have insulin resistance from all the excess glucose. Do you have any opinions on that model per se? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a little bit of a Pandora's box too. I mean, you know, PUFAs, if you look at, um, you know, linoleic acid, vegetable oil, seed oils, you know, their intake has gone up as has the obesity epidemic and insulin resistance epidemic, you know, they're on similar trends, but that does not mean one cause the other. Right. And, you know, what's confusing then is you look at large observational studies and show that people who eat the most amount of linoleic acid and PUFAs do better. They have you know less cardiovascular disease and they have less mortality and less insulin resistance. So, and that also doesn't prove causality, right? That right. doesn't prove that the PUFAs were beneficial, but it certainly brings in the question, like how dangerous can they be if, it, if, the, if in these large population studies, um, people are doing better by eating those. That being said, 
at the same time, I say there's no need for PUFAs. Like, why are we even talking about vegetable oils and seed oils? Because people are afraid of saturated fat. And when you're afraid of saturated fat, you need to replace it with something. And so these vegetable oils and PUFAs have become the replacement. But I think we just need to rewind and go back to our fear of saturated fat. And, and that's sort of baseless, really, when it comes to a healthy lifestyle and healthy diet. Now, when you look at these studies that show people who are um, overeating calories and eating a high-carb, high-fat diet and who tend to smoke more and exercise less and, and just be healthier in general, okay, eating more saturated fat in that setting correlates with worse clinical outcomes. But that's not what I'm talking about because if you get that person, you try and correct all those other things first before you even start talking about their diet. But when you get to the person who is interested in their health and is being proactive about their health and otherwise leading a healthy lifestyle, we have no evidence that saturated fat is dangerous in any way for that person. So now we're sort of reframing that whole question of why are we even talking about vegetable oils as a replacement for saturated fat if we don't even need to replace saturated fat in the first place? So I, I don't know, that, that's sort of how I see this topic a little bit. But, but the other part you brought up was that you can eat as much glucose as you want and not become insulin resistant. Well, that comes back to a lot of these athletes like, you know, Tim Noakes or right. even like myself. And you hear these, these stories of all these other athletes who are just, you know, bananas and bagels and goo and pasta and carbs and carbs and carbs, maybe not tons of junk food, but what are supposed to be sort of relatively healthy carbohydrates. And then over time, as you get, you know, that works great in twenties and thirties, but as you get to your forties, no, then the insulin resistance starts to come in. So you've, we've got examples of that as well. So, I don't think you can eat as many carbs as you want necessarily and forever um, and forever put off insulin resistance, just like you can't really eat as much fat as you want forever and assume it's, it's like a free macronutrient and the calories don't matter. You can still overeat calories in either situation. And that's what's going to start this feedback loop of, of gaining weight and insulin resistance. Hey guys, just to let you know, my Carnivore Cure book is back in stock. For nine months, it was out of print and used prices were up to $300. Make sure to get your copy today that has over 200 colored tables and graphics and over 400 pages of meaty goodness. We have a limited supply, so get your copy today on Amazon.com. And if you can leave a review, I'd be super grateful. Yeah, I, th I think that's really good. And, um, you know, it's funny, I forgot about those examples of Tim Noakes and other athletes that just would carb up a lot and they would still, you know, start seeing like diabetic numbers. So that's really powerful. Um, you know, on this topic, a lot of content that's coming out from Diet Doctor and even just a lot of the chatter on Twitter, or other um, social media outlets, there's a lot more kind of drive, um, even Keto Light or this new diet they call Keto Light, where we don't need to really focus on the fat and maybe we just up the protein for nutrient satiety for nutrient density. And maybe we don't need as much fat and you will still be in a ketogenic state. If you lower the carbohydrate count, that makes a lot of sense in a ketogenic state, maybe even paleolithic. If you are adding some carbs for satiety, a little bit of bloat in the gut, but when you are a carnivore or a meat, almost only dieter and you're eating lean protein, um, that makes me think of Robert's starvation, where it's just you're focusing on one uh, macronutrient that then has to be converted for energy into a fat or a glucose. But is it even possible? Like one, I guess, why is this trend for higher protein? And then two, um, is it even possible to 
eat that way as a meat-based dieter? Yeah. Yeah. Another good question. And you know, it, it's, it's one of those concepts of if something, if more of something is good, then a whole lot of it must be better. And that, that's not always the case. And, and this is a perfect example of that. I mean, um, so let's, let's look at this a couple of ways. So the first way to look at that is low carb, high fat is good. Okay. So let's eat, you know, 95% fat and 5% carbs. Well, no, that's not good because where's the protein? We need protein, right? And that's one thing. I don't like the term low carb, high fat because it ignores protein. Sure. So if you go back and look at a lot of the low carb studies in the literature, the randomized controlled trials, not only do they lower carbs, but they also increase protein. So really we know that lowering carbs and increasing protein is a very powerful way to improve weight loss and improve metabolic health. So then the question becomes, well, how far do you have to take that or how far can you take that? And this is where it gets a little challenging um, because it depends on what your goals are and what your progress is, right? Is a 20% protein diet good for you? Or is, you know, if more is better, is a 40 or 50% protein diet good for you? Well, if you're a bodybuilder trying to really maximize um, your muscle mass, then sure, getting up to like the 40% protein is, is going to be great. But if you're focusing on weight loss and metabolic health, you know, and you're in that 30% range, you're in your sweet spot. You probably don't need to increase it very much more. Um, and as you get to the extreme, like you said, if you're a carnivore eating just a meat-based diet and want to go mostly lean protein sources, that's also, I think, a recipe for disaster because you still need energy. Energy needs to come from somewhere. And our body doesn't use protein as a very efficient energy source. Protein is meant to be stored as muscle, as bone, as, you know, hair, you know, as the, the amino acids, where we can use these amino acids as storage to build our strength and build our functionality and our health. But that's different than needing immediate energy, right? So we can have gluconeogenesis where we convert protein into glucose, but it's kind of an inefficient process. So it's much better if we're also eating energy at the same time. So we can use body fat for energy and we can eat fat or we can eat carbs for energy. So, you know, I wouldn't ever recommend a you know, 70, 80% protein diet because it just doesn't make sense from an energy standpoint. So just because more of something is good doesn't mean, you know, taking it to the extreme is also good. So, you know, I, I recommend for most people that sweet spot, if you're talking protein percentages is around the 30% protein uh, for your calories, or if you're talking an absolute amount, you know, around 1.5 or so grams per kilo of reference body weight or ideal body weight is a good place to start. But those are just general guidelines. And then you have to adapt it based on how much, how, you know, how you like the foods, um, how logistically easy or difficult it is for you to do. And of course, your, your response, how hungry you are and, and your metabolic response. So there's this good concept that, you know, protein is very satiating, which the studies show it is. But then when people start eating some protein, they'd be like, I'm hungry. How can you say it's satiating? And now I'm hungry. When I, when I was eating all this fat, I was, I was more satiated. Well, I think the key is the, the satiety per calorie, right? Because there's, fat is obviously satiating, um, but it also comes with a lot of calories, you know, nine calories per gram, whereas protein is four calories per gram. So you can get more satiety per calorie out of protein. But if you, all you eat is protein, you might not be able to get enough calories to actually be fully satiated, if that makes sense. That's why I like prioritizing protein and then adding fat as you need to for the energy and the calories to add on to that. So I don't know, that's sort of how I see that. No, I, and I completely agree. And just to clarify for the audience, um, 
When you say 1.5 uh, grams per kilogram of weight, so is that about 0.8 grams per one pound of ideal body weight? Um, yeah, I think okay. that would be about right because, you know, 2.2 kilos. Yeah, it's about um, one pound. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I just wanted to make sure. Okay. And, and that, I think that I'm on board with. Um, I noticed that for meat-based dieters, especially when they're doing it for like an elimination diet for healing and supporting autoimmune um, I like the 0.8 grams as well. And then maybe doing like 70% fat that seems to really help with satiety. If they start going up that amount in terms of fat with um, 80% total calories and they start gaining weight and I see it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the 70, sometimes 65% is good, but I think anything under that, which I'm seeing a trend that people are trying to eat under, you know, hormones get wrecked. People start being ravenous all the time because again, they're not eating carbs to be fillers or satiety, you know, that. And so that's where I think it gets really tricky. Um, In regards to macronutrients in the kind of keto low carb space, we talk about, Hey, let's wear CGM. Look at how much our blood sugar doesn't go up and down. So we look, our health is great, but um, you know, some of the newer research is showing that actually fat does have an insulogenic effect. Maybe it's the total calories again, but, um, but it might just be later. And so something like a CGM may not show that you're having insulogenic effect on your food or with your food. And so if you're not losing weight, maybe on a meat-based diet or a keto diet, maybe it's because you're eating too much and maybe too much fat. It's just not showing in these kind of, you know, the, the CGMs and glucose monitors. Um, Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, a CGM, like any tool sort of measures one thing, you know, it, it measures, it measures your glucose. Now, that is not the end all be all for weight and health. You know, that is one aspect of it. So when you're using the CGM, you have to be very clear with yourself, what am I measuring and what are my goals for measuring this, right? And, and that has to do with metabolic health, with blood sugar, with, you know, diabetes, prediabetes, but you can uncouple that completely from weight loss. I mean, there are people who are obese and have very good uh, glucose control based on what they're eating. And there are people who are thin and have terrible glucose control based on what they're eating. Those, those can be completely uncoupled. Now, sometimes they, they obviously do go together right. because there is this concept of overeating calories and carbohydrates and having rising insulin and rising blood sugar and becoming obese. Those go together and that's going to show up on the CGM, but, but not always. So I think we have to be very clear about what the CGM um, is monitoring and, and it is not necessarily related to, to weight gain. And, and also, you know, again, what's the goal of a CGM? Is it a completely flat line with zero variation in your blood sugar? Well, no, that's, I mean, we don't have any evidence to suggest that that is, is the goal, but I also would say we don't use the you know, the ADA definition of diabetes as your goal, you know, blood sugar spike up to 170 is, is perfectly acceptable because it's, you know, below 200. No, I, I mean, I would never do that either. Right. Like, so where, where is the line? Where do you move the goalposts? And, and based on studies that are, that are out there, I think it, you know, 120 is kind of where you want to keep it at or below for most healthy people. Um, but again, that doesn't mean you completely revamp your diet just to focus on your blood sugar. You also have to factor in your weight, factor in your tolerances, factor in your triglycerides and your HDL and your blood pressure. You know, there's so many other factors, which on the one hand is very confusing um, because it's so much easier just to focus on one thing, but I think we can become far too myopic um, and and too focused on one thing. So and when you you say 120, do you mean um, after eating or when you, the, the minute you check in the morning? 
Yeah, 120 milligrams per deciliter after eating, okay. um, trying to stay below that the majority of the time, I think is, is a good marker of health. And this is, I, look, I have to be clear, this yeah. is based on sort of weak observational data, not interventional data, not with long-term outcomes, but it's the data we have, right? We don't have a whole lot of data of using CGMs and using postprandial blood glucose in, in relatively healthy individuals without type 2 diabetes. Right. If you have type 2 diabetes, keeping it below 140 is a, is a great step in the right direction. Um, you know, so the, the evidence to then take that leap and say healthy people keeping it below 120 is where you want to be. I have to admit it's not very strong data, but I think from what's out there, it's certainly suggestive that that's what you want to do. But again, not, not this completely flat right. line, right? Being in the 70s and 80s, uh, you know, going up to 110 and coming right back down to 90, or that's perfectly reasonable, and that's not a flat line, and, and, that's, and that's okay. And you know, when we exercise, I love when I wear a CGM and I see my biggest spike for my day is when I go mountain biking and I get up in the 130s and mountain biking and then come right back down. That's okay. I, you know, I don't worry about that at all because there's also a difference between higher blood sugar with low insulin and higher blood sugar with high insulin. Those are two very different scenarios, right? So if you're, if you're eating uh, low carb and you're healthy and your blood sugar goes up to 120 after eating and comes right back down, but it's not, it doesn't come with a nut with a huge insulin spike that then the insulin stays up all day. That's a very different scenario than your pancreas responding appropriately blood sugar going up appropriately, insulin going up appropriately, and then both coming right back down. Those are two very different scenarios. Right. And I think that's the difference with what we see in the low carb space of insulin sensitivity versus insulin resistance, right? Um, And going on that with these kind of metrics and numbers, I find it very interesting that in our low carb space where you know, our numbers, our blood panels may be a little different than what standard American dieters will view as normal. But then we still, we understand that our diet's different, that then then maybe our blood markers may be different, but we still kind of try to follow like even the thyroid marker, right? So I noticed in the uh, carnivore space, a lot of us have low T3s and it's perfectly normal. Maybe that's the new normal. Um, But in terms of cholesterol, it's the same thing, right? So we... I think a lot of people understand in the low carb space, it's normal to have maybe higher LDLs. HDL will also go up. Your triglycerides should maybe be under a hundred. But is there a point that maybe your cholesterol is a little too high, even in the low carb space? And I know, you know, numbers are not necessarily ideal to talk about, but is there a point where LDLP and LDL in general, the um, the total cholesterol of LDL? Is there a point where it's too high, even if your yeah. HDL is high and triglycerides are under 100? Yeah, good question. And there, there's a lot of emerge, or there hopefully will soon be a, some emerging evidence to point us in one direction um, okay. or the other, but we don't know for sure. But, but one important point to make, though, is that the science, the, the studies are very clear that the vast majority of people who start a low-carb diet to lose weight or treat their type 2 diabetes, LDL does not go up for the overwhelming majority of those people. And that's one point that I just have to keep making Tom blue in the face because the, the people who are sort of the doctors who, who are very cautious about low carb diets or keto diets or who flat out recommend people don't do it. Say your LDL is going to go through the roof. You cannot do that diet. And that is just blatantly false because in the vast majority of studies, LDL does not go up. Now, that being said, there is clearly a subpopulation where the LDL does go up. So it can but it's the minority. And I think that's really important to focus on. So do we have any evidence to say 
it can go up. It's okay to go up to 250, but if it goes up to 300, then it's too much. No, we don't have any evidence to say that. We don't have any evidence to say it's perfectly safe either. And we don't have any evidence to say in this population, it's really dangerous. So, you know, what do we do? Do we just throw our hands up in the air and say, I give up because we don't have any evidence? No, we have to, you know, do the best we can. And this is where it really does have to be individualized because first and foremost, we have to make sure we're talking about the right situation, the so-called hyper-responder situation where the HDL goes up, the triglycerides go down, and there aren't really any ongoing markers of severe metabolic dysfunction from you know insulin standpoint, blood sugar standpoint, chronic inflammation standpoint, and then other things like lipoprotein little a, you know, blood pressure, even a calcium score, all these things kind of come into play to evaluate that person to say, could your elevated LDL be contributing to a problem or is it possible that it's just a, you know, a benign response that has nothing to do with adverse health, um, adverse health consequences? And again, while we might, might not have hard data to say for sure, we can use all these other factors to kind of influence us because there are certainly suggestion, suggestive studies out there that you know, high LDL may not be a problem. In fact, there was one recently looking at calcium scores. People with calcium scores of zero and then followed for over 10 years how many, you know, uh, how many progressed and how many stayed the same with calcium scores of zero. And there was this subpopulation that they studied with people who had an LDL above 190. It wasn't low carb. It wasn't keto. It wasn't anything like that. But there was a subpopulation who had LDL above 190 milligrams per deciliter, which is considered, you know, automatic high, must treat with a statin, dangerous. You know, that's how cardiology considers it. But over half of them 10 years later still had a calcium score of zero. So that, I mean, that's as clear of evidence as you, I think you can get that there, we can't treat everybody with high LDL the same, that there are different populations who aren't going to progress, who aren't going to develop vascular disease. And how do we find out who these are? I think there's a very good possibility that they are the people who have low triglycerides, high HDL naturally with good metabolic health, low inflammatory markers, normal blood pressure, et cetera, et cetera, that that subgroup of people without familial hypercholesterolemia are going to be just fine. This is suggestive data, not proof data, but um, you know, hopefully that will be coming sometime soon because we have enough reason to, to question it. But this is where you know, things have to be very personalized, unfortunately, because we can't just make general recommendations. Yeah, I had a specific client that her LDL, so she was eating you know, a high-fat meat-based diet and her LDL was 800 plus. And so, but all the other markers you mentioned, CAC score, triglycerides, all of the other um, markers were totally fine. And I just had not seen a number that high before. And so she started ending up working with Dave Feldman um, and there, you know, she totally fits the hyper responder. But, you know, when people see that number or the, um, the LDLP marker being in the 3000s, it becomes concerning. And it's just how do you say, well, maybe for your situation, you're you are that population, right, that it might be okay. And so, yeah, I think it's where, um, and I get a lot of the messages from the people that their LDL is skyrocketing like that. And so uh. for that population, and maybe it is a very, very small subset, as you said, but maybe in the meat based world, because there's less carbohydrates in general. It's almost zero carbs and that may impact the cholesterol. I'm not sure. sure um, because I think the number one intervention to lower the LDL, at least from a lifestyle standpoint, is yeah. to add carbs. Yeah. It doesn't mean you have to go back to 200 grams of carbs a day, but if you're at like zero or 20 grams of carbs and you go to 75 grams of carbs, you can see that LDL come down. Yeah. Whether that's necessary or not is a whole different 
question, but if you're looking for a way to lower it, that is one way. So yeah, so I think, you know, if you can see going from 50 to 20 to zero grams of carbs, then maybe your likelihood of LDL going up also increases with that. I could see that happening. And yeah, you know, 800 is high. You know, I hear that and I hear my stomach goes, Ugh, you know, and that's part of my, you know, decades of cardiology training that I can't completely get away from. But at right. the same time, I have to acknowledge that I don't know the answer if that's if that's going to be harmful or not, but I do think that person deserves a very thorough evaluation for other um, potential contributors to vascular health or you know vascular disease, and an evaluation beyond just labs. Like that's where a calcium score, or CIMT, or different different tests can really be used in a thoughtful way to kind of say let's monitor this person more closely, as long as you know they they're getting other benefits from their lifestyle, right? If it if they could say yeah I could you know, leave it or take it with this carnivore diet, you know, it, it was okay. Then I'd say, well, why risk it? If you can eat other diets and just feel equally as good, you know, maybe it's worth changing, but it's almost never the case. Most people are like, I feel so much better. And you know, my, I'm thinking better and I've lost weight and my autoimmune conditions have improved. And you know, when you see all these benefits, then you're kind of hard pressed to want them to, to change. You want to keep them on that diet. That's making them feel so good. You just want to make sure it's safe and healthy for the longer term. And that's where more close, more um, careful monitoring comes into play. Yeah. And I think for her um, working with Dave Feldman, she, he brought up the, if you want to just kind of manipulate the numbers of the cholesterol test, eat some carbs before, but I think she added in some veggies and it did lower it a little bit, but not enough to be in the, you know, 170 and below range. So it is um, really fascinating. Um, are there markers that you uh, would define as these are really good markers to check consistently on a yearly basis for heart health, for cardiovascular risk? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, there are quite a few, you know, um, I, I really like to see ApoB LDL particle number and um, the small dense LDL. Um, of course, I love HDL and triglycerides. Those are so important and often overlooked. Uh, LP little a is really important to check at least once. Um, I'm a fan of calcium scores and following them over time. Um, there are lots of sort of newer tests, you know, like the um, the ox fossil, fos, uh, the ox PL ApoB, um, you know, there's LPPLA2. I can come up with so many other ones that have a role, but I don't know if they are the most important for everybody to follow. Because I think for most people, you just need to work on getting your trigs down, getting your HDL up naturally, um, reducing your percentage of small dense LDL, making sure your chronic inflammatory markers are low, you know, making sure your blood pressure is normal, making sure your blood sugar and insulin levels are normal. That's like the starting point. And I wouldn't go much deeper than that until those are really ironed out. Because if you're trying to focus on your more specific markers, but you haven't really addressed your basic markers, you're kind of getting a little backwards. And I see that a lot, that people are worried about like their LPPLA2, but their triglycerides are still 200 and their HDL is still 30. I'm like, well, hang on a second. Let's, let's rewind and, and see what we're doing and look at the broader picture rather than focusing in so much on those specific markers. Yeah. Uh, no, I can totally agree with that. Um, what about in terms of um, lately, you know, with that whole glucose insulin model, people are also saying that you can't do keto diets, ketogenic diets long-term. It's um, that too little insulin is not ideal for the body, but it's also a ketogenic diet can be catabolic. It can, you know, waste away our muscles and our tissues. And it's just a big stress on the body that is unnecessary. Mm -hmm. Thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I don't know that I agree with that as a blanket statement for sure. And then I think a lot of that comes into how much protein are you having? How much, you know, physical activity are you doing? 
because again, it's, it's not just one component of your lifestyle, it's your whole lifestyle. So that comes back to the, you know, maybe 80%, 85% fat, 5% carbs, 10% protein, that kind of diet. Sure. I could see how that could be problematic because you're not giving your body the building blocks it needs for bone health, for muscle health. Um, you need to give your, your body the, the, the building blocks it needs. So that's why I think for a keto diet, you reduce your carbs, you prioritize your protein, make sure you're getting enough protein, and then you fill in with fat for, you know, for, for taste and, and for the extra calories that you may need and to enjoy your food. Um, but you, a lot of that comes down to protein. And you know, like the same with whether you're intermittent fasting, time-restricted eating, eating low carb, you're going to do much better if you're also doing some form of exercise. You don't need to exercise for weight loss, but you, it really helps to exercise to maintain your lean body mass, to improve your muscle mass, to maintain your resting metabolic rate. Exercise really helps from that standpoint. So combining exercise with a health-focused nutrition um, is really going to be helpful. So, you know, uh, sure, there are extreme examples where you could see someone on a ketogenic diet being catabolic and losing mm -hmm. muscle mass. I don't think that's the majority of the people. Right. And I think it's also easily fixable by prioritizing protein, maybe reducing fat and, and adding back some carbs as well, which sometimes confuses people because you don't need to be ketogenic all the time. You can do carb cycling and some people do very well. I wrote a guide about carb cycling at dietdoctor.com with, you know, there's a lot of nuance there, but some people can do really well with that. Or some people find they're in ketosis with 20 grams of carbs and think they can't go to 21 grams of carbs. But in reality, as they improve their health, they might be able to go to 50 grams of carbs and still be in ketosis. So it's about learning your own thresholds as you pro progress over time, you know, because hopefully you're getting healthier as you go, losing weight and improving your metabolic health, which can also improve your carb flexibility. And, and I, and I, and that I agree with, I think that makes a lot of sense when you, um, I just want to get really specific when you say exercise, do you mean like cardio? Do you mean lifting weights? Like what Good type question. of exercise and how often would you recommend exercising in a week? Yeah. That, and thank you for, for saying that. It's, it's so easy to just, just say exercise. And then people are left saying, well, what, what do you mean exercise? What, what type? So, you know, I, I grew up as a triathlete in the eighties and nineties and it was just cardio, 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 how far, how long can you go? Um, and that was healthy. Right. And, and, and now, um, now we've gone to the other extreme that cardio is terrible. Cardio is for suckers and every, all you have to do is lift weights. Well, again, I'm sort of in the middle, but I think resistance training is number one because resistance training is where is really where you can uh, maintain muscle mass, um, which is good for metabolic health because it uses uh, your glucose. It helps with insulin sensitivity and it's just good for functionality as we age. You know, it's something that's good for the 20 year old and something that's good for the 70 year old. Um, to be doing resistance training. Now it can look very different for each person. One's going to be in the gym pumping heavy weights and one's going to be doing body weight squats onto a chair or doing just some band work or something. Um, but resistance training is first and foremost, but I don't ignore cardio either because cardio has its own benefits for whether it's um, vascular elasticity and lowering blood pressure, also burning some of that glucose. So people who see a big Dawn effect, um, sometimes just going out and walking for half an hour can really help mitigate that dawn effect. Right. Um, or after a meal, if you want to keep your glucose uh, rises from going too high, going out and walking can help because you're utilizing that glucose. So, so cardio has a role there as well, as well as for cardiorespiratory fitness. Um, and then high intensity interval training is sort of like the third leg of that stool, which also can be really helpful, especially from a from a time constraint standpoint, you know, like I don't have an hour to, to ride the exercise bike. All I've got is 15 minutes. Well then do some intervals 
um, and you get sort of more bang for your buck. But I kind of go, you know, in a perfect world, people would do all of those, right? I would love to design an exercise routine for everybody that involves resistance training, cardio, interval training, and mobility work. But a lot of people aren't going to have the time for that. So I would prioritize resistance training. And how long, how many times a week? You know, I think three days a week for 20 minutes is a great start. Um, but the key is being focused and being purposeful, you know, not walking around the gym, checking things out, taking your time, but being very purposeful about your, your exercises and then trying to get some cardio, you know, 30 minutes, three days a week or more, maybe one day of interval training and one day of mobility work. You know, that's sort of like the, the good entry level if you want to hit all four of those types of exercise. Well, thank you. Thank you for clarifying that. Um, you know, just kind of switching gears a little bit, um, in the carnivore space, there is, um, I guess it's almost like a clean version of paleo, but there's many, many uh, people that are eating lots of meat. So at least, you know, the 0.8 grams, if not more, and then mm -hmm. adding saturated fats. So maybe um, adding a little bit more butter, suet, you know, a tallow, and maybe having about 70% fat on top of that. But then they're adding a large amount of fruit. So um, I can't say exactly how much, but maybe one, 100 grams of fruit, uh, of carbohydrates in fruit. Is there any concern with then the body just utilizing the fructose or uh, into glycogen and then not um, using some of the fat? And then can that actually cause maybe some of the insulin resistance or any of that? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, and again, it, it, I think it comes down to caloric excess, right? If you're, if you're not, if you're still eating, sorry, let me phrase that, if you're still eating relatively hypocaloric, so fewer calories than your body needs during the day, you're going to burn the carbs, the fructose that, and the glucose that you eat, and you're going to burn most of the fat that you eat, and you're not going to be storing excess, um, especially if your carbs are, are fiber-filled carbs and your fruit isn't isn't like the super sweet high sugar fruits, but maybe the lower glycemic index fruits, especially in that setting, you're more likely going to be burning what you're eating and not storing it. Now, if you are in caloric excess, which is kind of easy to do if you're just chowing on fruit and chowing on added fat. So those are two things that are very easy to overconsume from right. a caloric standpoint. So if you are in, in pretty significant caloric excess, then yeah, I would be concerned about that because you're going to be, start storing whether you're storing the fructose as liver fat or whether you're storing the excess fat you're eating as adipose, um, as body adipose, both of those I think are potential risks. And that's where, you know, we have to be careful by, by either, you know, if you're in the low fat crowd saying, yes, fruit is basically a free food, eat as much as you want. Or if you're in the low carb crowd saying, yeah, fat is a free food, eat as much as you want. We sort of be careful about both of those messages. And if you combine the two together, then you can definitely get in trouble from that standpoint. But but I think it, it does come down to, are you, you know, are you getting full? Are you feeling satiated? Are you, you know, happy with your, with your meals? Do you have energy? And are you maintaining the slight negative caloric balance? Then I think there's less of a chance to run into trouble, even with that combination. And that's a really good explanation. I like that. I think, you know, the truth kind of always lies in the middle of things, right? And then finding what balance works for you. I think some people that are metabolically healthy, maybe a hundred grams of fibrous fruits are okay. But I think if you've been met metabolically challenged and still struggling with insulin and triglycerides, maybe the fruits aren't ideal. And so it gets yeah. kind of tricky with that. So um, I'm, I'm- That's a great point. Yeah. Because if you still, if you have type two diabetes or you still have severe insulin resistance, then yeah, that amount of fruit might really hamper your progress. 
And then it's not about the calories and it is about the carbohydrate insulin model from that standpoint. But as you become more metabolically healthy and more uh, carb flexible, then you can start to increase the fruit to that standpoint. Yeah. So that is a really important point about your, your sort of baseline insulin resistance. And again, when you look at the Katavans or you look at the, you know, the traditional Okinawans, insulin resistance kind of didn't exist in those populations, which is part of how they could get away with being healthy and eating so many carbs. But if you just take our you know, standard American po- insulin resistant population and plop them down into those societies, they're probably still going to have significant trouble until you can heal their, their sort of metabolic dysfunction. Right. Um, so what, what do you kind of typically eat in a day? Um, have you been ketogenic and then has it evolved? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I did, I started off mostly sort of low carb, didn't care if I was keto or not, just, just being low carb. And and then I started to pay more attention and wanted to be in ketosis and started testing my ketones. Um, and then over time started to focus more on the higher protein and then didn't care again if I was in ketosis or not. So that's me personally, right? That, that's sort of how I evolved because I'm not treating type two diabetes. I'm not you know, trying to lose a ton of weight. So those are the people I think ketosis can be really beneficial for. And for me, you know, um, logistical simplicity uh, means a lot to me. <laughs> it has to be kind of easy to do. As much as I love all our recipes at Diet Doctor, we've got phenomenal recipes. I'm not the guy who's going to take the time to spend 20 minutes preparing a recipe. So, so for me, it's pretty easy. I either, I'll either not eat breakfast or now I might make a, a, little, a little smoothie with some frozen berries, with some spinach, with peanut butter, uh, Greek yogurt, some chia seeds and a protein powder. I'll, I'll make that smoothie if I'm going to eat something in the morning. That's maybe two or three days a week. And then the other days I'll have my first meal around like 11 o'clock. And it's usually some version of whatever I had for dinner the night before. So, you know, either leftover steak or burger meat or, or salmon. I also like sardines um, and, and, you know, mussels and macros, sort of like some of the canned seafood that's really easy to do. And I'll eat that with just a big bed of, of um, spinach and leftover veggies. I love you know, broccoli and cauliflower and green beans and even carrots. You know, when I stopped worrying about ketosis, I started adding in carrots, which I just love. Those are like my candy now. Um, but, you know, all my carbs are very fibrous um, carbs. And then for dinner, it'll be, you know, something somewhat similar, you know, like a, uh, I just love to grill steak or, or burger meat or, or cook up some fish and, and make it real simple. Um, with steamed and roasted veggies, maybe a you know quarter or half of an avocado at most, and um, and call it a day. You know, lots of salt, and that's all I need. So for me, it's very simplistic. Um, right. And I know some people would be incredibly bored with that kind of diet. And I guess I'm lucky that, that I don't get bored with that kind of food. But for those people, that's who we have all those recipes for—a diet doctor that you can get creative and you can really have some really cool recipes. Yeah. Um, it's really interesting. I, I just have to ask this question because I know someone's thinking it, but do you worry at all about anti-nutrients, especially like in spinach with oxalates, you know, peanut butter, they say has like the lectins and, um, yeah. and other, um, and phytates. Um, do you worry about that at all? I don't. Yeah. Okay. I don't worry about that at all. You know, I think there might be, I, my personal take, and look, I have to be honest, I haven't delved really deep into this subject, but my personal take is that there is an element of scientific truth to that that has been overblown into a clinical problem that doesn't exist. Oh. Now, the other thing is I think some people may be more sensitive than others. Um, and that's true for so many different things, whether it's gluten, um, maybe even for PUFAs and linoleic acid, some people may be more sensitive than others. And maybe for, for um, 
the, the oxalates and the phytates and, and so forth, people may be more sensitive than others. And I think I'm fortunate that I am not sensitive. And you, know, you can tell if you're sensitive by how you feel and how you react. And I react very well to eating all those veggies. Um, so for me, that's fine. I remember I was, I was having dinner at, at a conference with Peter Ballerstadt, who um, he's, um, was he grass fed on Twitter, I think at grass fed. And, and he's, a, he's a, uh, agronomist and also a low carb advocate, but made a comment like I, I ordered the veggies and, and he gave me a sideways look, you know, cause he's carnivore and just you know, joking around. I said, I love my veggies. And he said, as long as they love you back. And for me, they love me back, but for him, they don't. So he avoids them, sense. right? So you got to know your own, your own personal um, tolerance. But I think as a general concept, I'm not concerned um, mm-hmm. about the anti-nutrients and the phytates and the oxalates as a general concern for the general population in an otherwise healthy diet. Okay. Yeah. And I can, I can see that if you, you know, because I, I, in my world of things, I work with clients that they've tried everything, even keto didn't fully work. So they try carnivore mm-hmm. because standard care is telling them to get on steroids or other medications that are a lot more right. serious. And so when they try it, then all the maybe oxalate foods that they ate, it does impact them. They'll feel some of the oxalate toxicity. But so in my world of things, it looks like there's a lot of people that are sensitive, but I think I work with the subset that are already naturally sensitive that have the autoimmune conditions, but that's not the bigger population. And that makes a lot of sense. Most people that try keto are not doing it to heal autoimmune. It's normally to lose weight, to get some of the metabolic numbers down. And, um, and I'm with you on the toxicity. So I used to be plant-based for 12 years and I had a pound of spinach every day and almonds, and I never had the oxalate dumping. So had I only worked with myself, I would have said, oh, that stuff is just, you know, but, but I do see clients that actually get very sick from it. Yeah. And so I, I understand that there is some, but you're right. It's probably a subset of the population and not everyone may have to worry about it, but there are some that it's a, um, it's a real marker that will help them really get better health. And so, you know, if it was up to me, I would say, okay, well, oxalates didn't impact me at all, but, um, right. but it does for some. And that's so important. I mean, that, that is so important that we, one, that we don't use our experience to assume everybody else has the same experience, but two, even with the literature, you know, the literature will say, this is what happens on average. This is what happens to the general population. And there's the bell curve and you know, there are going to be people on either end of that bell curve. So we have to honor individual experiences. We have to honor uniqueness. So whether we're phrasing our message for the general population or whether we're phrasing our message for each individual, it's a little bit of a different message. And right. You know, uh, 10 years ago, if you would have asked me about a carnivore diet, I would have said, what are you crazy? A diet without vegetables? Are you crazy? That you're, that's nuts. But now, now I absolutely endorse a carnivore diet. And I think there are definitely cert- certain situations where it can be very important with autoimmune conditions being one of those and someone trying keto and, and not improving and not seeing all their benefits, then switching to a carnivore diet. Uh, I, I have seen benefits with that as, as you have as well. And so many other people have. Um, now, what I think is so interesting down the road is, can you then start to add back some vegetables and add back some plant matter? And, and can you still see benefits there? Or is it a lifelong of carnivore? Like, you know, we just don't know. We don't have enough experience or, right. or evidence to suggest that. But that's what I think is a really interesting question for the future. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, a lot of the people I work with, they don't want to eat meat only for the rest of their life. They're doing it as a healing kind of avenue, mm-hmm. but their goal would be to add back and maybe have some of the low carb um, berries and have some veggies. And so their goal is to 
over time get healthier so that they can have that metabolic flexibility. And I, I think that is true healing is when you have the option, it's just you're choosing maybe to eat more meat and less veggies, but that's a choice rather than for health reasons, I, I have to eat this way. And right. so we'll see. I mean, over time, that's really kind of the question out there right now. Um, I had a listener ask a question. Um, they just asked if there are any studies with low carb diets and uh, more, I guess, positive outcomes with COVID. Have mm. You know, any of the COVID studies, first and foremost, are observational studies sure. that have tons of confounding variables. So you know, there's one going around about, you know, plant-based diets being protective against COVID. And then you look at the breakdown and the people who have plant-based diets were just so much healthier at baseline compared to the ones who didn't. And, and I'm sure you'd find the same things with, with low carbon keto diets. So um, I, I got to be honest, I, I wouldn't put a whole lot of stock in, in saying that the keto diet itself is protective against COVID. What I would put stock in is uh, being metabolically healthy is protective against COVID, period. So whatever you can do to get metabolically healthy, that is going to protect you against COVID. So keto diets are going to do that. For some people, you know, plant-based diets might do that. Um, for some people, Mediterranean diets are going to do that. But you know, the combination of all your lifestyle factors and your diet to make you metabolically healthy is going to protect, protect you from COVID or from complications from COVID, not from getting COVID infection period, but from yes. having a severe case or having complications from it. Yeah. A great clarification. Um, I think that's great. And I completely agree. Of all the years that you've been a cardiologist uh, working at Diet Doctor, where you see like a mass population of people, um, you know, what would you say are general tips that you've seen for healing, for uh, wellness? Um, just tips that are, you know, maybe it's like, oh, don't eat more than this amount of carbs, or maybe it's just consistency. Like what, what would you say are some great tips? Yeah. I mean, the number one tip is finding the diet that you are going to enjoy and that is going to address your hunger. I think those are two of the most important things that we don't talk nearly enough about enjoyment and hunger. And when I say we, I mean like the medical community. I think, I think the, the low carb world and specific dietary pockets are, are talking about that very nicely, but the medical world just sort of ignores that and says, this is how you eat, go do it. As opposed to asking the person and trying to understand from the person, what do they enjoy um, and how do they feel when they're eating a certain way and how's their hunger? Those are so important to address that, that medicine doctors um, really need to wake up and, and understand the importance of that. Uh, I, yeah, first and foremost. And then, and then focusing on nutrition first and foremost, but also bringing in other lifestyle factors. Like we talked about exercise. We didn't talk much about sleep, but sleep is so important. I mean, not just from a what happens to your body physiologically when you sleep well or don't sleep well? But what happens to your mind when you sleep well and you don't sleep well? You know, your ability to make good choices during the day all starts with how you slept. So, you know, bringing that into the picture as well. Uh, so as much as I love to talk about nutrition, I realize how our, you know, again, we're emotional people. So controlling and, and improving our emotions, a lot of that starts with sleep and addressing chronic stressors in your life as well. And then finding hopefully healthy stress reduction techniques, which for some is exercise. Some exercise causes more stress. So you got to know who you are in that group. Um, but kind of bringing all those together to really address lifestyle. And, and I really wish um, medicine as a whole would pay a lot more attention to that. Yeah, I, I agree. I think in general, holistic health, um, including 
healing stressors, chronic stressors, or even um, environmental stressors, and then finding that sleep and the nutrition. It's Nutrition is a big component, but I don't think it's everything. I've had some clients that work with me for a long time, heal a lot, gut issues, lots of imbalances, but there's trauma from their past. So they have to do therapy to work through why their cortisol in general may be higher and it might be from past trauma. And these are things that are harder to do and people don't want to do it. They'd rather just say, tell me how to eat and fix my life. Right. Um, But I think it's the, it's, these are really important things, especially during COVID when we're all separated and not, not having physical touch. And just, I think our stress, stress levels in general were notched up a little bit and it's not ideal for health. And then that'll affect our cortisol and our desire to eat junk foods and then sleep poorly. And yeah. And it circles. circles. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, so where can people find you more of your content? If people wanted to work with you, how could they start working with you? Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a great discussion. Um, to work with me, uh, lowcarbcardiologist.com is where you can find out more about that. I'm, I'm licensed in seven states for my telemedicine practice. Um, so if California, Nevada, Texas, Utah, Colorado, Illinois, Ohio, um, if you're one of those states, be happy to work with you. But mo- the majority of my content, though, is at dietdoctor.com. And that's where I'm, I'm writing guides and I'm sort of help shape all, all the guides and evidence-based all the guides to make sure it's as trustworthy and, and as helpful as possible. So really, I would direct people to go mostly to dietdoctor.com to, to find out all this information. You know, a lot of the things we talked about today, whether it's the, the carb cycling, the Dawn effect, using CGMs, um, you know, transitioning to higher protein or lower protein, we've written about all this at Diet Doctor. So hopefully, if you want to learn more, we've got plenty of content there to help guide you. Thank you for that. And for all you do for the community, thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. Thanks for joining, guys. And I hope that this helps you get one step closer to root cause healing. All right, guys, if you know the drill, make sure to eat a lot of meat. Take care of your bodies because it is the only place you have to live. I will talk to you guys next week. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Nutrition with Judy podcast. If you liked what you heard today, please make sure to leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast app so more listeners like you can find the show. If you want more practitioner care and support, head over to nutritionwithjudy.com groups so you can get more real talk about carnivore, the environment, and root cause healing. You can also find my content on Nutrition with Judy's YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Make sure to sign up for my weekly newsletter and learn more about in-depth articles with infographics at nutritionwithjudy.com slash articles. You can find my two books, Carnivore Cure and the Complete Carnivore Diet for Beginners on carnivorecure.com and amazon.com. At the heart of Nutrition with Judy's practice, our mission lies with a deep, unwavering passion for service and community. We will continue to empower you to have the knowledge and tools to live a life nearly symptom-free because we firmly believe in healing and wellness for all.